Seen as a whole, the direction of theological thinking has been characterized by a transference away from attention to the being per se of supernatural realities and toward attention to their relationship with humanity, with the world, and with the problems and affirmations of all those who for us are others. That was a quote from the French theologian Yves Congar, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the fundamental concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. What a show we have for today. First, Maria Soledad del Biartagle is returning to discuss the European roots of liberation theology. Second, I'll highlight the positive reactions of two European theologians to Latin American liberation theology, those of Jürgen Moltmann and Johann Baptiste Metz. And third, I'll respond to a question from a listener about the critiques of socialism and the defense of private property in Catholic social teaching. But before we get into all that, a bit of context, there is a chapter in Mysterium Liberationis on the reception of liberation theology in Europe. In fact, it's the second chapter. But since I thought it would be strange to make an early episode on this topic, after all, what Europeans think of Latin American liberationist thought is not really fundamental, we're only picking it up now in episode 26. And the inspiration for thinking through it now is that I recently read Maria Soledad's recent article on Gustavo Gutierrez and the French Nouvelle Théologie movement, and it seemed like the perfect excuse to have her back on the podcast. As we'll hear shortly, Sole remarks that it's important to see the relation between European theology and Latin American liberation theology as a complex dialogue with multiple partners. It's not that liberation theologians merely took some European points of reference and expanded on them. It's not only that Europeans condemned liberation theology for its affiliation with Marxism. It's also true that some Latin Americans positively influenced European thinkers of the time, and they continue to do so. And it's also true that some Europeans changed their assessment of liberation theology over time. The example of Moltmann will show just that. It's hard to generalize. There are many players, there's many types of relationships going on here across the two continents, and that's why I am so glad to have an excellent thinker like Sole on with us today to walk us through one strand of the relationship between Latin American liberation theology and European theology in the 20th century. Let's move into the interview. Uh, welcome back to the Liberation Theology Podcast, Soleil. And our first episode together was episode 15. It was on feminist liberation ecclesiology, and it was extremely well received. So it's great to have you on again for a second time, this time related to your 2022 article, The European Roots of a Theology of Liberation, Gustavo Gutierrez and the Nouvelle Theologie, published in the International Journal of Latin American Religions. 
Uh, let's get started with a bit of context and pertinence of this essay. Some people might be wondering, I thought Gutierrez's liberation theology was a Latin American thing. Uh, so what is the importance of looking at its European roots and what is at stake in your analysis? Okay, so yeah, so I guess that thing that you said, this is a Latin American thing. Latin American thought is not isolated from uh, other yeah, continents, uh, other uh, locations, social, political, uh, religious locations. So it's always Latin American thinking in general. I think it's crossed by many intersections. And I think that's true also from Gustavo Gutierrez's work. Like just the inspiration to write this paper, it came because the year that it was published, it was 50 years, the 50 years anniversary of the book. So there was this academic conference about it. And at that time, I was taking a course on Nobel Theology. And I started thinking about uh, reading all these authors and then realizing, oh, Gustavo Gutierrez quotes all these authors, uh, especially in his first chapter. So what about exploring this a little bit more? Like exploring this issue, I've, I realized that many times like the European roots of this book, in particular and of liberation theology in general has have been characterized as like almost like this is only Marxism uh, that has been transplanted into Latin America and but it's that but it has nothing to do with Latin America it has nothing to do with Catholicism in Latin America so usually when people talk about the European roots of this work they talk about it to disregard it as not original as not appropriate for Latin American context and almost as an infiltration of Marxism within the church. So that's a critique that comes from more conservative-driven scholars and people who are in this whole polemic against this book and against this current within the church. And I guess what I wanted to say with the paper is that we can affirm that this work is original. It's Latin American because it's written from that context and for that context, but also it's theologically rooted in a wider Catholic tradition that is in a sense, so it's in a, in, in a sense at the same time a global and a local work. We were just talking before we started recording about how I trace Nouvelle Theologie, but you can also trace German scholars, you can trace also a lot of Latin American theologians, Latin American thinkers like Mariategui. So it's really a work that brings together many, many many, many things. And I think that's what systematic theology has does in its best version to bring many different sources, both from the theological Catholic tradition, also social science, also the context of Latin America, the based communities, the reality that uh, of poverty that Gutierrez encountered when he finished his doctoral studies and came back to be a parish priest. All of this is bring together into a systematic work. So it's it's a short paper. I'm not like following all the genealogies of the work, but just one little strand, just to like take this discourse about uh, originality and being from Latin America out of this polemic against the book and really try to think about it like an intellectual history or historically. And also to say finally that originality is not isolation. And like we make a, a great disservice to Latin American thinking 
thinking in general, when we ask Latin American thinking to be almost like a folkloric thing, you know, I another way of disregarding this work is saying, oh, this is just for Latin America. This is just for this part very particular context, very particular time period in history, when really the book and Latin American theology in general is trying to speak to its context, but also to a wider audience. You can see that not only in Gutierrez, but in Sobrino, they're making they're all making claims about, yeah, about the third world and the first world. They're always talking in dialogue uh, from Latin America, but in a wider perspective. So I think that's that's one of the things that I wanted to brought, bring into the discussion. And much of your article traces aspects of Gutierrez's liberation theology to the Nouvelle uh, Theologie movement. So let's dive a bit into that. What was the Nouvelle Theologie movement? How did it arise? Uh, who were its key players, uh, the main ideas? And what's the relationship between the Nouvelle Theologie and the Second Vatican Council? Okay, so uh, this is a movement of French Catholic theologians and philosophers who were born in a particular moment in history. They witnessed the two world wars, the Great Depression, and they were really noticing that the church in their time was very disconnected from the reality of modern Europe, of contemporary Europe. So there was a sense of crisis in society and Catholicism was not responding to that sense of crisis. It was not responding to the existential questions of people at that time. So there's, I guess, the main thing about Nouvelle theology, from what I'm, uh, from what, from how I read it, is this the importance of history in two ways: the importance of going back to the sources, recovering patristics, recovering medieval sources, and also in the sense of going back to reality, going back to the present, going back to what's happening right now, and that double movement of going back to the sources and also looking. I will say, instead of looking inwards as a church in a defensive stance against modernity, looking outwards in ways in which we can engage with this modern world that seems to be so different from the actual life of the church, of the Catholic church. In This double movement was also part of Vatican II. And a lot of these theologians, when they started writing in the 40s, in the 50s, before Vatican II, and they were also writing after an important event within Catholic history that's called the modernist crisis. So to explain it very briefly, like the the education that theology was taught mostly on only on seminars. So it was for seminarians, for future priests. And with it, within those seminars, uh, what was taught at that time was neo-scholasticism. That is like, it comes from uh, Thomas Aquinas and the great medieval summas, but it's like kind of a ossified, very formulaic understanding of theology that it's just like, this is a question, this is the answer. And we have all the answers. And there's the, like this big system that you could not like challenge with new questions or like very like in a some in some sense defensive. All these theologians were saying the problem is not Aquinas himself, but the way we're using Aquinas, that it's very, yeah, disconnected, especially very disconnected from where Aquinas' work came from, that is the life of the church at his time. And he's own dialogue with the philosophical new sources of his time, like Aristotle coming from, from the Arab world back into uh, Christianity, 
there's this impulse with, be, between theologians uh, first at the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, to, to go back to the sources, to take history seriously, and they get crushed but and labeled as modernists and like expelled from from teaching and all of that. So in some sense, Nouvelle Theology is like a second moment in which, again, this turn to history, this rereading of sources comes again into theology, uh, but it's labeled again as kind of a heresy. Uh, many of these theologians, Yves Congad, Jean-Dominique Chenou, uh, Daniel Lou, Henry de Lubac, were forbidden to study, like to teach, uh, and were expelled from their positions until Vatican II came, and they got rehabilitated. So the term Nouvelle Theologie is actually a polemic term, and some of these authors will deny, like, for example, Henry de Lubac is one of the most famous, like, saying, I'm not a Nouvelle Theologian, like, this is, this, I don't take this label for me. Because it was created by, by, the, by their enemies, to saying, you are doing something new, and new is wrong. <laughs> so, uh, but somehow this term, like, this label stick through time, and uh, we're still using it to signal this this very particular moment that was so influential because it, it got received by Vatican II, uh, I will say, yeah. And now that we have an idea of the Nouvelle Theologie itself, what was the nature of Gustavo Gutierrez's contact with it? How did he come across it? And then having dialogued with it, how did uh, Gutierrez draw from it in his own work? Okay, so Gustavo Gutierrez was a young seminarian when he from Peru, and he was sent to study to Europe. Uh, precisely in this time. So he studied first at Leuven, there he studied psychology, and then he went to Lyon to study theology from 55 to 59, and he was in the Institut Catholique in Paris from 62 to 63. So he studied in Europe uh, where all these polemics were happening, just at the time that they were happening. And also, almost in the last period when Vatican II started, he was also in Europe to see this theology in some sense being rehabilitated. So he had access to the works of the theologians. He was informed of these polemics. He also personally knew uh, Yves Congar and Chenou, who are both Dominican priests. At that point, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez was not a Dominican. He was a, he was a diocesan priest. But later in his life, he will become a Dominican. And till today, he's part of the province of Lyon. So so and his decision to become a Dominican is in part of his admiration to Bartolomé de las Casas, but also because these connections that he built with uh, Nouvelle Theology, uh, these two big figures, Yves Congar and, uh, and Jean-Dominique Chenou. Yeah, so so I guess that's like the a little bi biographical history of it. And there's a lot of it's not that only that Gutierrez like take these ideas and applies them here, but also his theology had influence on what Congar did afterwards. So it's more like a dialogue than just a reception of something from Europe. And in the paper, there's a few I I found like this topic I think deserves much more attention and much much more research than what I did for this paper. It could be a much wider project. Uh, I find a few texts about Chenu talking about 
eh, Gutierrez that are very interesting. And they and there he says how many of his insights were developed afterwards because of the influence of Gutierrez in him. So it's like it's more like a dialogue than really eh, only something that's coming from Europe into into Gutierrez thinking. Eh, and I think that's very interesting. So some I like I think Nouvelle Theology is spe specifically and and very important for for Gustavo Gutierrez's method in theology uh, and his method is uh, expressing in in the first chapter of the book and there that's where you see the influence of three three main authors uh, so first so Maurice Blondel then uh, Chenu and Congar so about Maurice Blondel he's He's not from the generation of Nouvelle Theology. He's older. He wrote at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and he's kind of, he's a philosopher centered on phenomenology of action. He was very important. He was one of the authors that then Nouvelle Theolo Theologians will use to ground their work. And he speaks about like the transcendent orientation of human action and existential phenomenology that influenced all of Nouvelle Theology. And finally, this emphasis on act human action as, as being both transcendent and oriented towards changing the world. So you know that uh, Marx has this famous line that philosophers in the past used to think about the world and now are called to transform it. Uh, the praxis-oriented dimension of liberation theology stems from that uh, Marxist idea but it also stems from this less known French philosopher who was dealing with phenomenology and other authors. So I guess that's that's also very interesting. So that's when this narrative of the roots uh, of Gutierrez's work gets more complexified, I think. Second author, Jean-Dominique Chenou, that at one point I almost thought about writing a paper just about Gutierrez and Chenou because I think that's the most interesting relationship of all. For Chenou was both, he was a medievalist, he was an historian, uh, and also a theologian. Uh, and he wrote both about the past and about the present. So all this turn towards history in theology is is very prominent in Chenou's work. Uh, so there's so that's the first thing I think uh, Gutierrez uh, takes from Chenou, this idea that theology is not a timeless or fixed reality, but an historical endeavor that's rooted in the life of the church, in its past, in its present, and its future. So the other thing connected to that is like this idea of revelation as not being is if rev, like the main source of theology is historic revelation and historic revelation is visible in scriptures it's visible in tradition but can also be visible in our present moment through what very Vatican II language, the discernment of the signs of the times, right? Uh, so the actual life of the church today is a place where the spirit is working and theologians have to be attentive to that. And they like that attentiveness is key and it's both within the church, but, but also in the world in general, no? Like God's self-revelation has not ended, but it's ongoing. And theologians, in some sense, had for, have forgotten that by fixating in this old, like in an ossified form of tradition that they just passed down instead of going back to reality, seeing like the questions that emerge from, from this attention towards the world and the spirit working in the world and in the church. The other thing that's important, Gutierrez draws a lot on. So Shenu has this famous work that, that was the word that got him uh, like condemned by the Vatican and expelled from his teaching post that 
is so I don't speak French, but I will try to like pronounce this the best way I can. So Unicole de Theologie, eh, Lisa Short, from 1947. And in this little, well, it's not that little, but in this paper, he he criticizes the way that seminary formation and theology was done at his time. This criticism, Tawutieras draws from this criticism, and this criticism is very important from for his proposal of theology. So he will say, yeah, that, that again, I already said this, uh, like, but the problem is not Aquinas himself, but this later interpretations of the Summa that reduce theology to these dogmatic formulas, cutting it from their search that is a lived reality of the church. Yeah, so so that's also an important thing, and, and and this article of 1947, I think it's a key article to understand this turn towards history that is proper from this form of theology, and that is so important also for liberation theology. And then two more things: the preferential option for the poor. This is something very original from liberation theology, but there's also some early formulations of this, especially in France, the worker priest movement. Chenu was very connected to the worker priest movements. There was a lot of spirituality being developed at that time in France. I'm uh, I'm thinking of René Boyom, Charles de Foucault, and how it's reinterpreted uh, in the context of the West worker priest movement. All of that turned towards like the big masses of working class people that are disconnected from the church. Uh, that was so important from the Mission de France and was so important for French church history of the 20th century. In some way, is reinterpreted and deepened and like turned into a branch of theology itself uh, by liberation theologians. But I think that's also something that it's worth exploring historically a lot more because a lot of, for example, the worker priests uh, that were formed in Belgium and in France, they, after Vatican II, moved to Latin America and were important in not only formulating liberation theology, but working with Christian-based communities, like in all the pastoral work that is behind the ideas of liberation theology. So I guess that's something also a connection uh, between Chenu, who was very involved with this movement, and Gutierrez, and how that way of doing pastoral work finally becomes like this whole strand of theology in Latin America. And finally, from Congar, just one idea. Congar was big in ecclesiology, and he was thinking about the spirituality of the laity. He was very influenced by Catholic action. That was also this lay movement uh, of pre-Vatican II. And one of the things that Gutierrez takes from him is this value of secular life, as the place where Christian vocation is called to be lived on and realized. So Gutierrez himself was part of Catholic, Catholic action in Peru before he came to, before he went into the seminary. And there's like key elements of that movement, service to others, engagement with historical reality, committed responsibility, the spirituality of secularity. All of that in some sense comes from Congad or is influenced by Congad and, and it's important in Gutierrez's method. So I've talked a lot, That's, <laughs> but that's a main, like a synthesis of it. <laughs> so we've seen some ways in which uh, Gutierrez picked up on strands that were present in the Nouvelle Théologie and also how he was dialoguing with the Nouvelle uh, Théologien. But then how also do we see Guto Gustavo Gutierrez going beyond uh, Nouvelle Théologie and maybe at sometimes challenging it? 
Yeah. So, well, one of the things I will say is the preferential option for the. So I think this is like, it is a topic for Xenu, but it's not as developed or as central as it will become for Gutierrez and all that liberation theology movement. So that will be one thing that he goes beyond it. Another important thing, I think, it uh, all his structural analysis, like how he includes uh, more economic sources. He starts to think about poverty and oppression in ways in which this uh, European theologians were not thinking about too deeply. So I guess that's that's the main like point of development, and that comes from him engaging with other sources and also engaging with his own context. So he's not again, he's not like saying, oh this. This is something that happens a lot in Latin America. Like this is this cool theology that's been developed in Europe or in the United States. Uh, and be, because we're kind of a periphery for the like for Western thinking and for Western economy and like uh, have like this periphery center relationship, not only economic, but also intellectually. There's a lot of, OK, this I will apply this great idea from Europe into here. So I think. Gustavo Gutierrez is not doing that. He is, what he's doing is he's taking a method of attention to historical reality, uh, attention to the spirit working on historical reality, and taking the, that method and trying to think about the reality he encountered going back to Peru and working with, with the poor of Lima and saying, okay, so... What is the spirit saying to us from these people, starting from the poor, starting from all the revolutionary impetus that was part of the period that he was uh, writing on. You know, we have the Cuban Revolution. We have all this talk about development of changing like the like the traditional, yeah, like agrarian reform, uh, like different political projects towards changing the face of Latin America and especially changing it in favor of the poor in like different, like you'll say left uh, left to center wing uh, projects. So he situates himself there, himself there. And he's writing to a different audience. He's not writing only to other theologians. He's writing to the emergent base communities. He's writing to the laity. I guess that's, I at, at the end of the paper, I say something that maybe can illustrate this point. We always speak about how Medellin, the conference of Medellin in 68 in Latin America was the moment of reception of Vatican II, but it went beyond Vatican II, and it and it was uh, original and proper. And so something similar, I I will argue something similar between Nouvelle Theology and Liberation Theology. So it's kind of it's a similar dynamic, you know. Uh, there's this uh, new method, new way of thinking about theology, new way about thinking of the relationship between the church and the world. Okay, let's use this to think about our own reality. And and the main thing about that reality is the cry of the poor, the emergence of the poor as subject in history as so I guess that's that's when it, it goes way beyond what what his European formation offered him.
Now, we're talking about the Nouvelle Théologie, which occurred uh, largely before Vatican II, and then also Gustavo Gutierrez, who uh, published the, the book at hand in 1971. And so I wonder, in your experience uh, today as a student at, uh, at Boston College, who's working on uh, your doctorate, where do you see the place of uh, the Nouvelle Théologie and the place of Gustavo Gutierrez and liberation theology in general in the curriculum of theology programs? today, it seems that maybe at least to some degree, in the sense that you're writing this paper, these questions are still very active in the church. But what is your experience with uh, with that? Yeah, so I guess there are two strands of thought that are present in the curriculum, but are not thought together. So, <laughs> for example, especially if Skongar is very studied when you think about, like when you get take courses on Vatican II, for example, or in ecclesiology, you will have to go back to Yves Congad. Uh, you will have to go back to Novel Theology and understand how all this theology influenced Vatican II. And then, of course, also Ranet and other, other figures that were important for Vatican II. So, so you will learn about this through Vatican II studies, mostly, in my experience. And then you will learn about liberation theology in a specific course about liberation theology uh, that are offered almost every year. And that usually people, these are, I will say that while taking a class on Vatican II, it's almost like something that everybody needs to do. It's part of the, like, the norm. Here at BC, at least, taking liberation theology is not. So liberation theology, this happens with liberation theology, this happens with black theology, this happens with feminist theology, all this queer theology, all this like new strands of theology that are more critical. In some sense, get there are there, but they're electives. They're not part of the core curriculum. So if you are not uh, particularly interested on them, you will probably get a whole theological education without learning anything about it. And I think that's a problem. <laughs> because, and of course, then I think in, in that sense, European theology is still like more normative and it's it's considered more important in the sense that everybody needs to know it. If you're going to be a theologian, you have to, systematic theologian, you have to have read about these authors at least a little bit and be familiar with them. But you cannot say the same thing about liberation theology. And particularly about Chenu, I'm, I was very, he, I, I think he's like, I don't know how it is in France, but at least here in the US, he's like not such an important figure. And I was very surprised to encounter him. I was like very, I'm like, I love his theology, honestly. Uh, I think there's still a lot of things, even though he wrote in the 40s, in the 50s, there's a lot of things that uh, we can still develop from his thinking. And, and I think he's not such a well-known author here in the US, or at least in my education, he hasn't been like a, a big, big figure. Like if you compare it to other people from his generation, same De Lubac or Congad eh, or Runner Metz. Um, I don't know why, but <laughs> I think he is totally an underrated figure, at least here in the US. Uh, and one of the things that I took about doing this paper was, was getting to know him better. So, yeah. And I would say, from at least I've only been here for less than one year now, but uh, I did have a seminar last semester which was about synodality. 
So it was a whole mm-hmm. semester-long seminar that was dedicated to that that meant uh, once a week. And we did have two sessions that were entirely dedicated to the work of Yves Congar. And I would say maybe there would be two things that I would note from that. The one was the first article had to do with uh, the role of the laity. Mm. And he was talking about how, and, and you alluded to this a little bit before, which is that for theology studies, theology studies was mostly reduced to seminarians and to priests. And so seminarians and priests would receive a theological formation. And then, of course, I think would filter whatever they receive from their theological formation. And then almost maybe the model to compare it to something like Paulo Freire when he's talking about education mm. and the banking model, yeah, you know, where the professor just kind of dumps into the minds of the students little pieces of information that the professor yeah. wants the students to retain, that this would be a similar dynamic that was mm. happening in the church where the priests receive formation and then they kind of dump whatever theological knowledge uh, they want to into the minds of lay people. Congar was really ch- challenging that uh, for sure and was going back to the baptism and how qua baptized Christians, all baptized Christians have this mission of participating in the evangelizing work of the church. And part of that work is teaching. You know, Jesus says to his disciples, go and teach all nations. And so the idea would be that it's it's not limited to the, the priestly group in the church to be doing the work of teaching, of evangelizing, of preaching, but actually that that is something that's rooted in the baptism and that baptism pertains to the people of God as a whole and not only to, to the priestly group. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing, and this one was, I was a little bit more critical and I was uh, baffled in a way, but uh, which would be Kongar also has uh, a chapter in one of his books on ecclesiology, which is dedicated to messy you know, we see Jesus as as the Messiah, and so he's trying to think about what would be the messianic relationship of the church to Jesus, and that you know Jesus uh, confers upon the church in some ways the continuation of uh, Jesus's work. And so in what way can the church be messianic, right? Which is kind of a very provocative question. One of those questions where I think, you know, at the time when he's writing this, you see how it could be called into question. There's great debate and 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 it's really pushing theology forward in many ways. But when we got to the question of violence, he was very much so anti-violence. You know, there's no mm-hmm. way in which messianism should be associated with violence. And I brought up this question in class because I said, well, what does it mean for a French person, a French theologian, to be basically telling the world, don't rebel, <laughs> or don't don't yeah. rebel in a violent way? Uh-huh. And uh, what what the professor kind of helped me to understand, I don't think it entirely resolved the issue, but mm-hmm. would be precisely the context that you talked about at the beginning, mm-hmm. which was that many of these theologians experienced horrible violence and that they yeah. lived through World War One and World War or two, they saw in their day movements that considered themselves in some way to be messianic or salvific and also had large nationalistic components. And so then in some ways projecting that back onto Jesus and saying, well, that's not what Jesus was about. And I think we hear that sometimes uh, as a response to liberation theology. Well, Jesus wasn't about violence. And so what is it that liberation theologians are doing when kind of talking about revolution and the relationship between uh, theology and revolution? So I still do think that there 
there, we do need to maybe call into question the idea that a European theologian would be kind of saying in a general way, no to any violent revolution, given that Europeans themselves, of course, had benefited from a series of violent revolutions, for example, the French Revolution and all mm. the revolutions that happened in the 19th century as well. I'm here in Paris and I can't help, you know, I walk throughout the city and you see all of these monuments that are to revolution. And then you have many of these thinkers from the 20th century basically saying no to revolution. Mm -hmm. And you see there the contextual uh, difference as well. But um, so, yeah, so I would say that as far as Congar, definitely a figure that is still very present. And precisely for the reason that you mentioned too, which is the understanding of Vatican II, and that this is one of the people who was key in the writing of Lumen Gentium. Yeah. And so, whereas he put these ideas in Lumen Gentium didn't come from nowhere, um, a lot of them were already present in the work of Congar and in other theologians. Theologians. Um, so that that's a little bit of uh, what I've experienced so far here. That's interesting because, yeah, the, the question of violence. And of course, in the book Liberation Theology, there's, I think, Ayakuria is, is the one that like dwells into that question uh, a lot more. But yeah, you like one of the good things about doing theology informed by history and by context is precisely the points that you raise in that discussion. You know, like these people were writing after two devastating world wars, after seeing their country invaded by a foreign army that was very like messianic or like has like had this very strong nationalistic and like savior like complex that at the same time was very violent and so so I guess like when you read it in light of that context you understand why they're saying this but at the same time it is as you said very well one of the things that one of the arguments between the relationship between Europe and and the Americas is always like and it's not only about violence but also another things like how for example industrialization you know a, a huge debate with uh, like ecolo ecology today and like the environment and all of that is how I, I don't I'm not saying that I argue like I agree with this but <laughs> the idea that okay so Europeans like destroyed all the environment and they have all this like great uh, developed uh, civilization and resources uh, because they went through an industrialization process and now they're denying that for us because it damages the environment so so there's like an imbalance in power the same thing can be said about violence the way you described it, right? Like there's an imbalance in power and in historical experience. So um, it's hard for, for someone from Latin America to hear a European say, you cannot do this or you're not allowed to do that uh, because it's a form of imperialism in some sense, or it can be interpreted in that way. And also a way of denying like subaltern peoples the freedom to explore their own way towards uh, creating a better society. So, so yeah, that's like one way of understanding that debate. I think that can be important, but I don't say I agree with it, but... <laughs> I myself, I have become increasingly a nonviolent person, especially I've been reading a lot of trauma studies and the effect that violence has on people, the long-standing effects. And I guess like just reading about that has made me much more conscious about how violence has lasting negative effects on generations of people. So so I guess that that has made me more cautious about talking about violence lightly. But but it's a complex 
issue and and just saying no we're not violent and that's it and Jesus was not violent and end of discussion I think doesn't make justice to the to the issue now I want to change gears a little bit uh last time mm -hmm. we talked about the Chilean president Gabriel uh, Boric and the process of developing a new constitution in in Chile and I wanted to bring this up with you because it's something that I hear about quite a bit in Paris. It's something that people even sometimes will ask me questions about that are follow-up questions from our previous episode because mm -hmm. we talked about that a little bit. And I said, well, wait, hold on. Uh, we'll <laughs> have another conversation with Sole here coming up. And so what do you know about what's going on with the constitutional process in Chile now? I think there was a first vote that did not go through. Yeah. Um, what happened with that? And and then also what might be any theological reflections that you would have on that process? Oh, okay. So, so yeah, there was this new constitution, uh, very progressive, attending a lot of issues that, yeah, like I, I was mostly seduced by the new constitution because of its, for example, environmentalism, like a lot, a lot of things about feminism, uh, decentralization of the country. There were, I think, a lot of very, very good ideas in that text. And in some way, I don't want to, like, I have it in my, uh, like within my book. And I think it's, even though it, it, it was rejected by the citizens of Chile, I think it's still a text that deserves attention and that a lot of things that are there can still be part of a political project for the country, even though we will not have all of it at once. <laughs> that was kind of the ambition behind the project, I think. So I guess like Gabriel Boric's government started, it was only six or seven months when we had this election. And in some sense, the first months of the government was, of course, adjusting to being in charge of the Chilean state. And also, like, in some in some sense, waiting, what is going to happen? Is people going to approve or reject this? Because the scenery, like, for the government was going to be very different if they had to implement a new constitution than if it got rejected and we just have to work with what we have. So... <laughs> So sadly for me, at least, I, I think it was a good project. The constitution got rejected for a number of reasons. Right now, there's a new constitutional process going on, but it's much more limited in its scope. It's being, it's, so what happened after the rejection of the new constitution is that, the, so Chilean people have agreed mostly that we need a new constitution, but this project was, did not convince everyone. And but the question about having a new constitution remains. So there's only like extreme right wing uh, people that are saying, no, we just want to keep the constitution of the 80s. It's fine. We don't want any changes from center right to the left. There's an agreement. We need to have a new constitution. Uh, but right now, I think it's people are tired of the discussion. People are not. There's this sociologist that says that like there's a constitutional process and a constitutional moment. So constitutional moment is when citizens are really into this and want to see changes and are mobilized by this idea of a new constitution. And that moment can be part of a political process or not. Uh, we had for a few years a constitutional moment and process happening at the same time. 
but it failed. So right now what we have is a constitutional process that is mostly happening on Congress and it's been managed by the political parties, but there's not a constitutional moment. So people are not really uh, into it as they were three years ago. And I think there's a lot of things happening, like especially like the pandemic, the global situation of crisis uh, that has also impacted Chile economically. We live in such an uncertain, like the uncertainties around the future have grown a lot. So in some sense, people, I get, I think people are tired of uncertainties. <laughs> There's kind of a moment of like, yeah, we're tired. We're tired and we just want to go back to normal, try to figure out like our lives, even though we don't like the system as it is, it's better than things that are uncertain and that we know will not know the outcome. That So I think that that issue of uncertainty and being tired of is influencing a lot of why people are not really interested in. And, and also the idea that, again, this process is going to be managed by the political parties and not by the people, but at the same time, the people are not that interested. So it's like a weird situation. So. So we will see what happens. And in terms of the government, I think they are trying to advance a government plan as much as I can within the legal structures that we have that are very limiting. And there's been some important new measures in favor of the people, in favor of women, in favor of protecting the environment, interesting like new um, public policy. And they're, they're trying to do things. Uh, but in a context that I think it's very adverse, both internationally and also locally, because also the losing the possibility of a new constitution was also seen like Chile saying, like, we don't approve of your political project, even though you're our government now. So, so it's kind of a very, yeah, it's a complex situation. Uh, I think Gabriel Boric uh, is a good leader. He's, uh, he's idealistic, but he's also very pragmatic. And right now he's exploiting his pragmatic side to try and uh, navigate between all these complexities and trying to do something within the limited um, framework in which we are that is very different to that open like framework that we were three years ago. And theologically, um, what can I say? I think, again, I think many of the ideas that are in the failed new constitution are ideas that are still worth fighting for and still worth thinking about, even though not many people are doing that today in Chile. The fact that this is a failed project is like, okay, this is a failed project, so... so so nobody's talking about it anymore. But I remember a meme that says like, uh, you don't, there's this meme that says like, you don't love it, but your kids will love it. Like, <laughs> I think like in the future, like young people were, will look at this moment in Chilean history and say like, why didn't you approve this? Like, <laughs> we needed this. So, so I guess, yeah, like maybe, in, yeah, many of the ideas, many of the problems that were trying to be addressed uh, on this new constitutional project are still there and are still important and I can be still as uh, like it can be still a, a source of hope of creativity of yeah of 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 rethinking politics even though as as a whole project it it failed right to convince everyone so and also um so I have an unpublished paper that I wrote when when the estallido social happened that when this big uh, uprising happened in 2019 before the pandemic. And I was very, in that paper, very enthusiastically saying that people in Chile were finally like waking up 
against neoliberalism. And and I think today, that waking up moment, it was a moment, but we don't know if it's like the lasting, uh, like, we don't know if it's going to lead to lasting change or not. So maybe just, I think, theologically, I'm struggling with this. I think we have to to keep a sense of hope, also be very critical, self-critical, and try to understand deeply why people rejected this project. Because, of course, there was a lot of propaganda from the right against it, and a lot of manipulation and all of that. But also there were a lot of people that like legitimately said, like, we don't want this for our country. And that's if you do legal theology and it's in its a theology that that seriously what people think about reality and how they engaged with that reality. That's that's a data of reality that you cannot like miss that you have to think about. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for those reflections on the, the constitutional process. Is there something else that you'd like to share before we conclude? Yeah, so there's one more thing. This year, 2023, it's 50 years since the military coup in, in 1973. It's For me, it's really disappointing that 50 years after we're still ruled by the constitution created on a dictatorship. So, so that's really frustrating. And it's it's hard to for me to think that we're going to go into this anniversary without really as a country being able to to deal with the legacy of the dictatorship and to free ourselves from that legacy in a fuller way. So so that's one of the other reasons why the failure of this constitutional project in its in this uh, version of it was also very disappointing. I'm I'm looking forward also to see how this 50 anniversary is commemorated in Chile. What debates are going to happen? All like I remember 10 years ago, the 40 years was like a revival of history, narrative, a lot of new books about it, a lot of people talking about their experiences with the dictatorship. Like there was a lot of debate. It was a very interesting moment, and I'm just curious to know what's going to happen this year. Uh, this time I won't I will be looking at it from the outside in some sense from the United States. I've been like I, I've been having to say no to a lot of invitations of being parts of project to commemorate the, the 50 years and I've had to say no but uh, but one of the things that I know that at least the, from the government how they want to frame this is not only remembering the drama of the dictatorship but also remembering all the people who fought against it and all the long fight, to recover democracy and to defend human rights that happened during that period and is still happening. So I guess that that's also an interesting way of looking at it um, as like really highlighting and celebrating those people that uh, that m- many of them gave their lives uh, to have uh, human rights respected and democracy back in the country. So and and the Catholic Church was at that moment really important in articulating that that resistance towards the dictatorship. So I hope that at least from some Catholic circles, that uh, idea of recovering or remembering those people, those traditions, that legacy of defense of human rights, of defense of democracy, of standing against oppression is something that is uh, remembered this year and highlighted uh, also by Catholics. Yeah. 
It seems that the 50th anniversary could be an opportunity for both the government and for the citizens and for the church as well to almost rekindle some of, uh, you were talking before about the constitutional moment and how there was energy in the people in order to work for social change and to be a part of the mm -hmm. process. And it seems that maybe this anniversary could could help to reinitiate uh, some of those feelings in the people uh, towards working for a new situation. I hope so. I think, uh, of course, there's a lot of conflict that will also uh, emerge or re-emerge, uh, and a lot of trauma, historical trauma, a lot of uh, debate, a lot of, yeah, maybe uh, there's been already a few um, indicios, like a few signals that people from from the extreme right will, will be uh, celebrating this anniversary as a great thing that happened to the country, you know? Uh, so so that's also something that we have to be on the lookout, how people who who like Pinochet, who defend Pinochet, will also frame this this moment uh, and the conflict that can emerge there. But uh, let's end with a hopeful note that <laughs> maybe this uh, anniversary is also an opportunity to rekindle that passion towards building a better society, uh, creating a stronger democracy protecting uh, human rights and also open us opens our eyes for the challenges that we have today so yeah <laughs> that's my hope <laughs> thanks so much Sole, for those re reflections and thank you so much for what you've shared in your article and uh, for what we were able to cover today uh, your work is so important and uh, i look forward to continuing to follow it okay thank you david for inviting me Now that we've seen some of the French side of the dialogue, let's move eastward and look at two German theologians and their reactions to liberation theology. First, Jürgen Moltmann, a significant Reformed thinker known for his books The Theology of Hope and The Crucified God. And the second title, The Crucified God, was actually found soaked in blood, the blood of the Jesuit martyr Juan Ramon Moreno of the Central American University following his assassination in 1989. And I'm going to include a link to a moving photo of this relic of this book uh, soaked in his blood in the show notes. The image is striking because it demonstrates the link between the crucified God of the passion of the revolutionary Jesus in the first century and the crucified followers of the Christ of liberation in contemporary times. So what did Moltmann think of liberation theology? At first, in fact, he was not pleased. In the Mysterium Liberationis chapter on the reception of liberation theology in Europe, uh, Juan José uh, Tamayo names three of Moltmann's initial critiques. One, it's provincial. Two, it's too reliant on Marxism. And three, it's not authentically Latin American. Perhaps it's uh, readily possible to see one, why one might deploy the first two objections. Okay, uh, liberation theology is provincial. It's a Latin American thing. Uh, okay, liberation theology is too Marxist. But what about the third? Why would Moltmann think 
that it's not Latin American. Tamayo writes, quote, The process of liberation postulated for Latin America by Gustavo Gutierrez in A Theology of Liberation seemed to Moltmann to be merely copied from Europe's historical conception of liberty, end quote. Gutierrez's book was not Latin American enough for the European Moltmann. This critique reminds me of an interview that I actually had with a Honduran film director a few years ago when I was preparing my book on Honduran cinema. He said, Some critics say that my films are too international. They don't capture the local culture of Honduras. I often tell them, Don't condemn Honduran filmmakers to eternal provincialism. We too have the right to dialogue with world cultures to project beyond ourselves. And I think that's a fascinating response that relates to a debate in Marxism. To what degree should non-European revolutionaries rely on Marx, a European? Gutierrez certainly thought alongside Europeans, as we've seen with Sole, but did not only think with Europeans. And I think that an open-minded reader of Gutierrez will see that he draws from actually a variety of sources which include, to cite a few Latin American ones directly from the footnotes, the Peruvian Bishop Conference, Che Guevara, Mariategui, Juan Luis II, and Enrique Claudio de Lima Vaz. Curiously, Gutierrez also includes a relevant quote from Hegel in a footnote right at the end of his chapter on the option of the Latin American church. Quote, America should separate itself from the soil on which universal history has until now developed, end quote. Now, Moltmann did change his mind over time. Ten years after his initial critiques, he writes about ecclesial-based communities as, quote, a new experience of the Holy Spirit, a new Pentecostal experience, end quote. Base communities are no longer Marxist cells, as he may have thought before, but authentic signs of a promising church reform that allows communities of believers to become, quote, subjects of their own history, end quote. So props to Moltmann for a flexibility of spirit that allowed him in time to reassess liberation theology in a positive light. What about a second German theologian, Johann Baptist Metz? Though Metz began his career in theology as a disciple of Karl Rahner, and his transcendental approach, Metz moved progressively towards a political theology that attacked bourgeois Christianity and towards a prophetic theology that sought justice for victims of the system within history. This development led him towards a favorable reception of liberation theology. His mature theology called out the dual problems of private religion and rationalistic theology, and he saw Latin American liberation theology as a powerful force acting against both of these problems. Christianity is in need of a second reformation that takes it beyond its current bourgeois state, and the church of the poor in Latin America is precisely the place from which the second, transform- the second reformation can emerge. The liberation theology movement is popular, not private and bourgeois and pastoral, not hyper-intellectual. The affinities between Metz, Metz and liberation theology are strong. It's no surprise that Gutierrez frequently cites Metz in A Theology of Liberation, and Gutierrez's work in the historical movement it described became in turn for Metz a source of hope and a crucial locus of transformation towards a post-bourgeois church. 
So there we have it, <laughs> two figures of 20th century European theology who received Latin American liberation theology favorably and saw it as a place of conversion for a church in need of just that. I would like to continue with a response to a question from a listener who would like to reconcile their Catholicism and their socialist views. Big topic. <laughs> of particular concern are the church encyclicals, which condemn socialism and affirm the right to private property. So we can begin by citing some encyclicals, ones uh, in question. Uh, pope Leo XIII, the pope who wrote Rerum Novarum, the encyclical that laments the misery of the working class and affirms the importance of labor unions, also wrote, Quod Apostolici Muneris, which begins with an invective against socialism. And it's kind of epic, so I will quote it. At the very beginning of our pontificate, as the nature of our apostolic office demanded, we hastened to point out in an encyclical letter addressed to you, venerable brethren, the deadly plague that is creeping into the very fibers of human society and leading it onto the verge of destruction at the same time, we pointed out also the most effectual remedies by which society might be restored and might escape from the very serious dangers which threaten it. But the evils which we then deplored have so rapidly increased that we are again compelled to address you, as though we heard the voice of the prophet ringing in our ears, Cry, cease not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, you understand." my venerable brethren, that we speak of that sect of men who under various and almost barbarous names are called socialists, communists, or nihilists, who spread over all the world and bound together by the closest ties in a wicked confederacy, no longer seek the shelter of secret meetings, but openly and boldly marching forth in the light of day, strive to bring to a head what they have long been planning the overthrow of all civil society whatsoever, end quote. So uh, that's, that's rather negative, but that was in 1878. Perhaps the church evolved on the question. Well, in 1931, we have the encyclical Quadragesimo Anno from Pope Pius XI, which addresses the possibility of Christian so socialism with a resounding no. Quote, if socialism, like all errors, contains some truth, which, moreover, the supreme pontiffs have never denied, it is based, nevertheless, on a theory of human society peculiar to itself and irreconcilable with true Christianity. Religious socialism, Christian socialism, are contradictory terms. No one can be, at the same time, a good Catholic and a true socialist, end quote. But maybe the church evolved on the question after that. Well, actually a bit, yes. <laughs> Let's look at the friendly tone of an article from Pope Benedict XVI from 2006 in which he speaks about democratic socialism as a rather positive development in the 19th century. Quote, 
Democratic socialism managed to fit within the two existing models as a welcome counterweight to the radical liberal positions, which it developed and corrected. It also managed to appeal to various denominations. In England, it became the political party of the Catholics, who had never felt at home among either the Protestant conservatives or the liberals. In Wilhelmine Germany, too, Catholic groups felt closer to democratic socialism than to the rigidly Prussian and Protestant conservative forces. In many respects, democratic socialism was and is close to Catholic social doctrine and has, in any case, made a remarkable contribution to the formation of a social consciousness. End quote. Benedict XVI speaks of democratic socialism in a conciliatory manner here, though naturally he's careful in his choice of words, was and is close to, is not the same as, for instance, fully compatible with. At the same time, a was and is close to for democratic socialism is remarkable, considering that Catholic social teaching does not propose specific political economic models, but rather generalizable principles for social life. In the same article, Benedict XVI opposes authoritarian socialism and democratic socialism. The first is atheistic, materialistic, deterministic, dogmatic. The second is a more organic, friendly part of the European story. And in the article, it's a defense of Europe's heritage and identity that the Pope is after. So given these comments, it seems to me that actually Benedict XVI's answer to the question of the compatibility of socialism and Catholicism is not actually very far from many of the liberation theologians' answers. There's a certain rigorous, strict, politico-military application of dialectical materialism that Catholics should be aware of, and there's a certain humanist socialism, and by humanist here I mean in opposition to materially reductive, that many Catholics have historically felt at home with, and that many Catholics continue to embrace as a close political expression of Catholic social thought. Benedict wants to leave some room for the Holy Spirit between Catholic social teaching and socialism, but he doesn't want to stop the dance altogether. And for more on that, uh, I've included in the, the reference to Benedict's article uh, in the show notes. And take a look at that. Very fascinating. Now, for the question of private property, I want to give a book recommendation first and foremost, but then I'll gesture to the answer that this book provides itself. You can't just give a book reference and then finish. I, so you have to say something about the book. So I will. Uh, the book is The Ideological Weapons of Death by Franz Joseph Hinklemert, and its sixth chapter is entitled Private Property and Modern Catholic Social Teaching. And I'll also put the reference for this one in the show notes. The chapter starts with a potentially surprising comparison, uh, at least I was <laughs> shocked by this the first time I saw it, between Thomas Aquinas and Joseph Stalin, natural uh, intellectual partners, on the importance of the administrators of economically productive institutions who exist to facilitate the use of the goods of the earth by all. The natural right uh, is common use. So we have, we have a natural right to the use of the goods of the earth, essentially, is what's being argued here. But it's efficient to have people in charge so that econo economic activity is not chaotic, but ordered towards the fulfillment of the natural right to the common use of the goods of the earth. In effect, both Aquinas and Stalin see a need for a chain of command, and both recognize that this chain of command is not a natural right, but rather a means of productively mobilizing a natural right, which is that of the use of goods of the earth for the whole. 
All right, so that sounds about right. We can see how Aquinas is getting at this topic of what is the natural right and then what are kind of the efficient means that we should use in our fallen world in order to uh, actualize those natural rights. And uh, Stalin, uh, looking at, of course, the end goal of a communist society, recognizes that in the transition period following the Russian Revolution, that there's also, we could say in, in a way, uh, what Catholics would maybe call the problem of fallen human nature. Well, some of the factories were kind of chaotic, he writes, and so we need to organize ourselves a little bit. We need to put people in charge. It's fine for us to own everything in common, but uh, we need some administrators. So both were kind of on board about that, and it sounds about right. Now the error, the error, Hinklemert claims, comes in when we interpret the secondary principle of means as the same thing as a natural right to private property. And he cites Pierre Bigot, a Catholic social thinker who does just that, but in an ever so sly way. Quote, uh, Thomas Aquinas, this is from a quote from Bigot. Thomas Aquinas takes the common good as his framework of reference, and it is the common good, which means, lest we forget, the good of human persons insofar as they make up one human totality that demands private property. It is in the interest of the totality to ensure that things run well and that there be order and peace, end quote. Maybe at a first reading, we're kind of, you may be thinking, okay, well, it's a little complicated. A shift is made, a subtle shift, but an important shift from the natural right of the use of the goods of the earth to the common good. And a shift is made from Aquinas's notion of property to the contemporary notion of private property. Big mistake, big mistake. And not only a big mistake, but an intellectually dishonest mistake. And not only an intellectually dishonest mistake, but a mistake that leads Bigo into a contradiction against the natural right where he allegedly started, that of all of the use of the goods of the earth, as affirmed by Aquinas. Uh, Hinklemert cites uh, Bigo again, quote, It is natural for persons to own what they have made or have acquired legitimately, end quote. All right, so, so we started with all people have, have this natural right to the use of the goods of the earth. Then we said in order to make that work in our fallen human situation, we need to have some people in charge. Then we went from, well, now having that those people in charge, now they, they somehow have a natural right to own what they have made or have acquired legitimately. Acquired legitimately sounds very interesting. Then Hinklemert continues with his witty appraisal of Bigo's fallacious reasoning here. Now, what's the problem? Quote, nature and God are construed in such a fashion that through their mouth you can hear our bourgeoisie speaking. Oh, is that nice? But... Why is it not natural that each person's work belong to all, so that all working together might be able to live? Mm. End quote. Hinklemert insists upon the fact that this error made by Bigo is the same error that many expressions of Catholic social teaching make. And in fact, it's precisely Pope Francis who has begun to correct this problem. The Pope writes in Fratelli Tutti, paragraph 123, 123, 
Uh, quote, the right to private property is always accompanied by the primary and prior principle of the subordination of all private property to the universal destination of the earth's goods and thus the right of all to their use. And it's this line from his encyclical that has really pissed off many capitalists who, like Bigo, want to make of private property a natural right, that is, a right written into human nature. When in reality, Catholic tradition before the emergence of capitalism saw property not as a natural right, but as a way to express the natural right of all to the use of the earth's goods in a situation of fallen humanity. Some versions of Catholic social teaching have not maintained the careful distinctions that Aquinas did, and it shows. Let us not confuse administrative efficacy with a natural right. Much more to be said here, but for now, <laughs> I'll suggest uh, reading that chapter of Hinklemert uh, in particular, and the whole book in general, really a good book. The Ideological Weapons of Death is, is a game changer. It's a game changer. And I think that those who read this book often find that Hinklemert has already done a lot of the hard, deep work on many questions leftist Catholics continue to pose today. And if you've not read it yet, I would recommend moving it to the top of your reading list. Thanks for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Let's end with a prayer adapted from the end of Pope Francis's Fratelli Tutti. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God, the Liberator, grant that we Christians may live the gospel of your reign, discovering you in each human being, recognizing you crucified in the sufferings of the abandoned and forgotten of our world, and risen in each community that makes a new start on our common pilgrimage towards the horizon of a new society remade in your love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.